Arise and shine is our theme for this new year, taken from Isaiah 60. Arise and shine, it says, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Verse 2 says this, See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples. We know about that, don't we? But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. His glory appears over you. Arise and shine. Are we arising and shining? Do you feel like arising and shining? Like Dan said last week, many, many times he didn't feel like (laughs) rising or shining. And we get, get like that, especially when there's a lot of darkness over the earth. You know, we get down with the darkness, don't we? We get a little bit probably too involved sometimes with the darkness and it gets us down. And yet, God's word to us is, arise and shine. Look over that. Look to where your help comes from. I'd like us to turn to a passage today that's a very unusual passage. I'm going to read from Luke 8, verse 26, but you could. You could find it in Matthew chapter 8. You could find it in Mark chapter 5. And it's really interesting because even though these three gospel writers particularly write about this particular episode, which is really confusing and uh, really a lot of questions about it, the commentators, I have looked through so many commentaries, hardly write anything about it. And that's really frustrating when you're a preacher and you want to find somebody who's got a fair bit of stuff on on this particular passage and they just don't want to spend any time on it. That's because it is quite confusing, but we'll have a go this morning because I think it's got a lot to do with a rise and shine. And if you've got any questions whatsoever, Dan at Derby City Church (laughs) or... Gordon Neal's here in two weeks, all right? (laughs) So here's Luke chapter 8. And it says this, verse 26. So they arrived in the region of the Gerasenes, across the lake from Galilee. As Jesus was climbing out of the boat, a man who was possessed by demons came out to meet him. For a long time he had been homeless and naked, living in the tombs outside the town. As soon as he saw Jesus, he shrieked and fell in front of him. Then he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Please, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already commanded the evil spirit to come out of him. This spirit had often taken control of the man. Even when he was placed under guard and put in chains and shackles, he simply broke them and rushed out into the wilderness, completely under the demon's power. Jesus demanded, what is your name? Legion, he replied, for he was filled with many demons. The demons kept begging Jesus not to send them into the bottomless pit or the abyss, as your version might say. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby, and demons begged him to let them enter into the pigs, so Jesus gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the entire herd plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and were drowned. 
When the herdsmen saw it, they fled to the nearby town and surrounding countryside, spreading news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been freed from the demons. He was sitting at Jesus' feet, fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what happened told others how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And all the people in the region of the Gerasenes begged Jesus to go away and leave them alone, for a great wave of fear swept over them. So Jesus returned to the boat and left, crossing back to the other side of the lake. The man who had been freed from the demons begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him home, saying, No, go back to your family. Tell them everything God has done for you. So he went all through the town, proclaiming the great things Jesus had done for him. I don't know about you, as I read that, loads of questions pop up. Why this? Why that? What's that all about? You know, what's, what's Jesus actually doing in that particular thing? And if you think that passage is about the demonic, it's not. It mentions demons, but it's not about the demonic, per se. It's not about the effects of the demonic, really, although it shows that the demonic have, has effects, and it can be quite disturbing. And, you know, there is evil. There is evil in the world, absolutely. We see it on the news every night, Every day, it flashes up on our phone all the time. And uh, so there is evil. But I really believe this particular passage is about communities. It's really about communities and about the effects of evil on communities and how communities can be transformed. How communities can be utterly transformed by the power of Jesus, the message that Christians have got. I've got, you know, a friend of mine, Steve Kempton, and um, Steve spent many, many years in, in Nepal. Just this week, there was an article on BBC News about missionary work in Nepal and how missionaries were destroying the culture of Nepal as a Hindu nation. Well, actually, it's now a secular state. It's not a Hindu nation anymore, but Hinduism would be the primary Hinduism and Buddhism would be the primary religions, but it's illegal to convert to another religion. And yet, many, many people are converting to Christianity in Nepal. Hundreds of people. And there's all kinds of missionaries out there. And this particular uh, article was talking about Korean missionaries and how uh, absolutely going for it they they really are and uh, I've experienced that I've experienced that I've been out to Nepal many many times Lisa's been out to Nepal many many times you might have been out there and there's a way of doing missionary work sometimes that's very appropriate very sensitive to the culture creates questions in people and allows you to give them answers to their questions there's other types of missionary work that are very just sigh through culture and erect enormous big churches and bring along big massive loads of money and people in poverty 
tend to gravitate to that. Why wouldn't they? And they suddenly find themselves converted to Christianity in that way. And I don't know. There's a way of doing things in communities. That's what I'm saying, wherever you are. And in our community here in Derby and the wider area, I want you to ask yourself the question, why has God ordained that you live where you live? Why do you live in Chatterston? Not, why do you live in Chatterston? Why do you live in Chatterston? Why do you live in Shardlow? Yeah. Why do you live? Why do you live in the place? What, what's God doing there? What's God got for you? Why is he bringing us all together on a Sunday from all over the place, even wider than Derby? Some people come from Burton. Some people come from even further afield. And there's some people here from Horsham today. I know Horsham. But why does, why does God move people to certain areas? And why do some people live in certain areas for 20, 30, 40, 50 years? What's that about? What's God doing? Are you allowing God to do anything in that situation? I'm going to look today at um, the man. I'm going to look at the community that he was from. And I'm going to look at what Jesus did. And then I'm going to shut up and we're going to go for a cup of tea and think about it. But I believe this hopeless situation of this poor demonized man is a picture of our towns, our cities, our communities, our, our neighborhoods where evil has got in and people have tried to fix things in the natural. Because really, the, the majority of people don't know anything about the supernatural. They just think it's all weird and spooky and they don't get involved in it. So they try and fix things in the natural, but they, they fix it to a certain degree. They make places a little bit nicer places to live, but it never really fixes the real situation. And the problem, maybe sometimes it's moved out of their community into somebody else's community, and it affects that. And really, it never really gets solved, and it just propagates and, and, and seems to cause trouble wherever it goes. But you look at this poor man without Jesus. He was on the road to pain, suffering, destruction, ultimately oblivion, because evil was ravaging, ravaging his life. And it was majorly affecting the community that he was from. And this story, even though it's in all three Gospels, it follows in those three Gospels from the account where Jesus calms the storm. So Mark and Matthew and Luke all write about Jesus calming the storm. Jesus having power over Natural things like the wind and the rain. Jesus has power and authority over that. But the very next portion of scripture is Jesus having power and authority over supernatural things. The demonic, the spirit world. And Jesus, therefore, what the gospel writers are saying, Jesus has ultimate power. You know, evil might seem strong, but not compared to Jesus. If Jesus says go... Evil has to go. 
nature might seem strong. It wreaks destruction. We see hurricanes and whirlwinds and all kinds of things, tsunamis. But Jesus speaks a word, peace be still, and the storm is calmed instantly. Jesus has ultimate authority. Mark writes in chapter 4, verse 41, And they were filled with awe and said amongst themselves, Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? That's the disciples saying that. In chapter 5, verse 20, Luke records, So the man started off to visit... Oh, sorry, this is, this is Mark. So the man started off to visit the ten towns of the region and began to tell everyone about the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he told them. So people were... The disciples were amazed that the wind and the rain obey him. And the people were amazed that this demonic man was now healed and in his right mind and clothed and at peace. Both stories placed back to back show that Jesus was who he was, who he claimed he was. He was God's son. He had ultimate authority, whether it be natural or supernatural. But why do the gospel writers write this particular passage? What's the reason for them writing this? My answer would be to that is because ultimately God loves people and God loves the communities that people live in. And Jesus came to change people's lives as individuals, but he also came to change communities where people live. Let me explain. The poor man, let's look at the poor man. He was out of his mind. He self-harmed. He was cutting himself with rocks and what else. He was shackled and chained up. He was alone and isolated. He was naked, said, says Luke. He was tormented night and day. He must have been absolutely shattered. It says he wandered aimlessly. He was aimless in life. And he was homeless because he was outside of his community. He was in the tombs and the caves. And there were some pigs there. I know what you're thinking. Come on, Andy. Mention something about the pigs. Tell us a, a, a bit about I don't. I don't know what was going on there. I don't know why people living in the Jewish region kept pigs. You know, we clearly see that we, they don't eat them. You know, I don't know why. Jesus seemed to sort of like listen to the demons. And, and instead of sending them to the bottomless pit, the abyss... He sort of like allowed them to go into the pigs. I don't know what that was all about. Does Jesus have more compassion for demons than pigs? I don't know. I'm not a major theologian. Maybe I scored a kneel in a couple of weeks. All I do know is that if the demons did that to the pigs, what were they doing to that poor guy? What was going off in that poor guy's life? If that happened to the pigs, that poor guy was living in absolute torment. And it must have been absolute agony for him. He was perceived as dangerous. His shrieks, his erratic behavior, obviously were frightening for his family, for the community. He was a danger to himself. He frequently harmed himself by hitting himself with rocks. He was personally hopeless and lost, and his mental condition kept him wandering 
aimlessly and naked among the tombs. He was mentally, physically, and spiritually wrecked in every way as the demons tormented him night and day. These were the effects of demonization. But perhaps they were only an extreme example of what's going off in everybody's life without Jesus. Without Jesus, many, many people struggle with what is life all about. It's aimless. I'm wondering about what's the point in acquiring stuff and trying to get better jobs and if when I die, I leave it all behind. What's, what's the point of all that? We, we know on the news, mental illness is, is absolutely, at, at, at its pinnacle, it's never been higher now. There's loads of people suffering in that way. I'm not saying everybody's demonized, but we can see the effects of demoralization and probably demonization sometimes. But let me tell you, if you struggle... I don't want you to go away this morning thinking, goodness, I've got mental illness, I've got depression, and now I've got demons. I don't want you to go away thinking that. I want you to know Jesus, Jesus is the answer. Jesus can help you in your life. Jesus can transform your life. He can deliver you of all those things. But his community was really suffering. Obviously, they were struggling to cope with this situation. It isn't to say that they were doing a bad thing. Jesus doesn't criticize the community. He doesn't judge them at all. Maybe this poor guy was chained up because he he had a tendency to hurt himself. Maybe the chains were about him not helping himself. And that was the only way that the community could stop him doing that. Maybe the community, they could have banished him across the lake to Galilee. But they didn't. They kept him out to the margins and the graveyard seems like an awful place to put him but actually it was where everybody else's loved ones were and it might have been the safest place for him. So I'm not judging the community but they were terrorized by him. The story doesn't record that he was hungry or half starved or anything like that. So Perhaps they looked after him as best they could. I wouldn't have wanted to have been the guy holding him down when he broke free from his chains to try and chain him up again, put it that way. But it was, a, it was an awful thing because if you're living in a community where you're living under that, 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 that pressure that suddenly this mad demoniac could appear at your door and back in the community again, that's, that's a real terrorist situation, a real frightening situation. His community could have banished him, but perhaps they just put him on on the margins. Whatever the reason, it's clear that this community was in a desperate situation. They needed help. They had sought to solve the situation in the natural ways that they thought that they could, chaining him up, putting him somewhere where he, he might be safe and not at a danger to anybody else. But they needed a supernatural Solution, rather than a natural solution. But sadly, it seems to me that this situation is replicated many, many times in our communities and we're 2,000 years on. And we try to cope with all kinds of awful situations in our towns and our cities that are destroying uh, our communities and we try and cope with them in natural ways. You know, I... 
You see it. Councils and other groups, they, they go into deprived communities and they do projects. And a deprived community hates projects because there's intelligent people live in those communities and they don't want to just say, oh, we've got a bit of funding. We're going to sink it into this community for, for six months and see what, what it does and come out with a load of, load of stats and stuff like that. They're real communities. They've got real issues. But council's trying the best and council workers trying to do their best. And, you know, you see education programs. You see environmental programs. You see sporting activity programs. You see health and exercise programs. And they're all meritable things. And they're all ways in which our society tries to mend communities. But they're all natural ways of mending. And they need supernatural ways of mending communities. You know, 1 Timothy 4 says this. Physical exercise profits a little. But spiritual exercise is much more important for it promises a reward in both this life and the next. I truly believe that what this passage is teaching us is that, yeah, challenging communities do need exercise. But you know what? Challenging communities also need exercise. And we're part of that. Jesus has put his Holy Spirit in us And we don't all have to be amazing exorcists or anything like that. We have the spirit of Jesus in us. I once um, worked in a factory where there was accidents happening all the time. And um, the Japanese boss knew that I was training for the ministry. So one morning, after he'd written on the board all that we were doing all the production that we had to get out that week and how much bonus we'd get if we did it. He turned to me in front of the lads that were working in the factory, there was about 20, and he says, Andrew, you are an exorcist, yes? <laughs> I said, what, what, do you, what do you mean, Mr. Kato? And he said, he said, you get rid of evil spirits. And I said, well, I suppose so. So he said, right, next Wednesday, he says, Bring your Bible. We'll close down the factory. Get everybody out in the car park. We'll close down the offices. Get everybody out in the car park. And you're going to go around the factory and pray for safety. And get rid of all the evil spirits that are causing all these accidents. (laughs) Come Wednesday, I brought my tatty New Testament uh, NIV uh, Bible. And he said to me, he says, right, everybody out in the car park. He says, Andrew... Go and get rid of the demons. <laughs> and this is I pulled these gigantic doors open and I went in and I was desperate to go around going, ooh, ooh. <laughs> but I didn't really know what I was doing. And I just went round saying, God, I know I know the characters that work in this area. I know what they're like. I know they try and sabotage each other's jobs all the time just for a laugh. I'm just praying for safety. I'm praying for harmony. I'm praying for unity. I'm praying that, you know, nobody gets hurt any more than what, what we've been hurt already. And uh, I was spent about an hour in there. And I come out, and everybody was in the car park. It was a beautiful day. They were all having a barbecue. And he'd laid on loads of alcohol, so they were happy. And uh, they came up to me, and they said, what did you see? Did you see anything? Did you see anything? And I just went, well, some things are best not talked about. 
And uh, Mr. Cato gave me an envelope, and it was a week's wages. A week's wages for doing an hour's prayer. I'll do that any time. <laughs> and, uh, but from that day to when I left six months later, every Friday, Mr. Cato used to stand by the clocking in clock and just wish people a happy, uh, you know, a good weekend as they clocked out. And uh, every time I used to take my card out of the in-slot, clock it and put it in the out-slot, he used to stop and he used to say, Andrew, no accidents this week. And I'd say to him, that's God, Mr. Qatar. That's God. And I prayed like mad that no accidents are happen the next week. <laughs> you know. But, what God taught me was the Holy Spirit is powerful. I'm not powerful at all, but the Holy Spirit is powerful and he can work through every single one of us. And we try and work out things in the natural. And that's good. Don't get me wrong, that's good. But as Christians, we also need to be open to the supernatural. Because in our communities and the people that we know, there's spiritual things taking place. And we have the power, we have the authority invested in us by God's Holy Spirit. And I truly believe that each and every one of us can be as effective in combating evil. I don't go looking for it. <laughs> but if it arises, we deal with it. We've got the wherewithal. Every single one of us. Don't go ringing me and Dan in the middle of the night. Deal with it yourself, okay? <laughs> But um, I really believe that. I really believe that. But we don't have to do it in a dramatic way every time. The book of Micah says this, Do what is right. Love mercy. Walk humbly with our God or with your God. He will most definitely affect the spiritual atmosphere if we do that but also if we're willing to do what he tells us to do. Jesus affected the spiritual atmosphere of what was going on in this particular passage. It's quite a confusing passage. There's lots of things about it that are, you know, seem to contradict themselves. Look at the reaction of the people. It says people gathered around Jesus. It says some were frightened. Some obviously didn't fully trust the miracle because there was this man clothed in his right mind at peace but they had fear because all they'd seen about this guy was he was a guy you don't go near and then suddenly he's okay I think I would be the same probably some said to Jesus oh, Jesus leave us go away from this place why would you do that Jesus is the guy that's brought peace to that community changed this man's life why would you want him to go away Maybe they were keeping the pigs. There's all sorts of conjecture. Maybe they had a bit of a racketeer going. Maybe they worked for Tesco's and they were putting pig meat in the lasagna or something like that. Mark and Luke seem to portray this community as, as really messed up. Really messed up. And I guess they probably were. You know, they were messed up because their reaction showed how messed up they were. Instead of welcoming Jesus, they wanted, they wanted him out. We're going to get that. We're going to get that in our communities. 
in the places of work where you work, maybe even in your own family. You know, even if you try to be appropriate and not weird, even if you try to be humble and show mercy and do exactly what Micah tells us to do, you're going to get rejected, but it doesn't stop us loving the people in those communities. It didn't stop Jesus loving the people. It didn't alter Jesus' compassion for them at all. Jesus didn't reject the struggling community. He loved them so much that he returned to them a son, healed, at peace, happy, and ready to contribute to that particular society. Someone that who could now hug his parents, sit and watch children play, go to work again. You know, we can learn a lot from how Jesus interacted with this man. Jesus could have decided, well, this is brilliant. Why don't I take him with me on my journey to Jerusalem? Why don't I take him round different places and he can give his testimony and I can, I can do the preaching and teaching and that would be a good that would be a good spectacle and it'll be a, a, a good thing. He could have contacted the local journalists at the time and got it in the, the local papers or, or whatever. The news could have spread like that. He could have got in touch with Jerusalem God TV or something like that and they could have done a whole series about it. They could have called it the X factor or exorcism factor or something like that. But interestingly, Jesus didn't do any of them things. Jesus said to this guy, no, go home, go back to your community, tell them, show them, live it out, what I have done. These people who didn't know how to deal with you, who excommunicated you, go back and live with them. Show that this healing is real, that it is lasting, that it is genuine. Don't simply become a, a spectacle or a bit of a, uh, a sideshow or, or, or something like that. Be a living witness to God's power in your life. And that's really interesting, isn't it? Because as humans, we tend to always jump to the big things. You know, I've had people say to me, you know, go for the big stuff. Why are you limiting yourself? Go for the big, you know, on YouTube and everything like that. Don't get me wrong, YouTube is really, really important now. I realize some of you guys watched us on YouTube for months, and eventually you came to church. That's great. But I'm glad you're in church. I'm glad you're in church. And if you're at that point now where you've been watching us for a couple of months, I'd love it if you came to church because you'd, you'd not just see me on the platform or Dan or the worship band. You'd see these lovely people that I'm looking at now. You get to know them. You get to know that they're strong Christians or maybe even feel that they're not so strong. Maybe they need you. Maybe they need, they need your encouragement. We can all help one another because that's what discipleship really, really is. Jesus' strategy was always personal, always local rather than global. But what happened local obviously affected global but Jesus didn't really worry about that. He just let the news spread. He concentrated on the individuals because he cared for individuals. He cared so much 
And I believe Jesus is still doing that now. Jesus, his approach is totally reliant on the relationship. And God's put people in your communities. He's given you neighbours. He's given you colleagues. He's given you family members that might be a complete pain. You might even be frightened of them. As this community, we're frightened of this man. But Jesus put you in their lives for some reason. For some reason. That reason is to bring peace to their lives. That reason is to bring an aim to their lives rather than being aimless. That reason is to bring hope to their lives and for them to realize that in Jesus, there is salvation. There is peace. There is an eternity that can be secure in him. God's given us all that commission. And what does Isaiah say? Arise and shine for your light has come. What is Jesus doing in your community? What is he doing? He loves your community more than you love your community, so he's at work in it already. Are we even looking? Are we even looking to what Jesus is doing? Because all he wants us to do is join in with what he's doing. Cooperate with what he's doing. Lend a hand and see his kingdom built across our city. We're praying this year, part of our AGM. If I had a vision for, for this church and you as an individual, it would be that each and every one of us this year sees either a friend or a family person or a colleague come to faith in Jesus Christ this year. That, that's a simple vision. But I really believe that that's, that's Jesus' vision. One person at a time changing a community, changing a city. Local rather than global. Personal rather than blanket. I really believe that God has put his spirit in each and every one of us. And as churches, we can really fall into the trap of doing it for you. I just bring your friends to church. We'll, we'll disciple them. We'll teach them. We'll do this for them. We'll do that for them. When really and truly, and we'll preach to them and they might put their hand up in a meeting. Do you know what? If God's put that person in your life and you've been witnessing to them for years and years and years, I want you to have the joy of leading them to Jesus. I don't want to take away that opportunity from you. Even though it's great to see people responding to Jesus in the meeting. But you know, people can get saved on a Monday on a Tuesday, on a Wednesday, on a Thursday. And that would be brilliant to hear stories of saying, I've never done this before, but my friend became a Christian and I prayed with him. And I've been witnessing to them for ages because it will give you energy, it will give you encouragement to then go on to somebody else. And you might have a real tough nut in your life. You might have somebody who's out of their mind in your life. Who knows? You might be fearful of them. But Jesus put his Holy Spirit in every single one of us. And if you have the power to change people who come into contact with you through Jesus Christ. Not in the natural. We can make their life a bit better. But supernaturally, Jesus placed his Spirit in every single one of us. And we need to really begin to realize that. Because as Isaiah says, there's an awful lot of darkness in the world. And people are trapped in it. But he's saying to the Christians, 
Arise and shine, for your light has come. Let's pray. I'm going to invite the band back up. Someone had a word earlier on. And um, it was about the possibility of someone here really struggling with bitterness because someone's offended you perhaps or someone's really wronged you in some way and bitterness has really taken lodged there in your life and really the word is don't let it take root don't let it take root don't let it affect you and I guess it ties really in with, with this because you know we can exercise ourselves as well you know, we can pray, Lord, deliver me from, from this thing that is restricting me, that's weighing me down, that's really stopping me in my tracks. And I really believe Jesus hears prayers like that because most of all, Jesus wants the people in our lives to know him as well. And he doesn't want us to be weighed down, heavy, carrying something around for years and years and years. He wants us to be partnering with him in what he's doing in people's lives. So if that's you today, weighed down by that bitterness, by that wrong, don't let it take root. Don't let it start sapping you of your energy and your, your life. Give it to God. Give it to God. Let him cut it off right now in Jesus' name. And begin to look up. Begin to realize what I, Isaiah was saying, arise and shine for your light has come. There's a world in darkness out there and it needs deliverance. It needs transformation. And God's given every single one of us his Holy Spirit to do that. So, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. Lord, you've chosen them since before they were born. You've placed your Holy Spirit in each and every one of them when they come to faith in you. And Lord, you have given every single one of us a commission, a command to go out into all the world. Lord, you've placed us in jobs, in communities, in families, not haphazardly, not randomly, but deliberately. And some of them are tough, but Lord, they're there in our lives. So Lord, I pray that you give every single one of us divine opportunities to share your love, your gospel, your supernatural power in their lives. And may we see our communities, our families, our colleagues transformed by the wonderful power of your holy name. Lord, there is power in your name, only in your name. So Jesus, we pray that we be awake to that. We would arise and we would shine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.